All right, good morning again, everybody, and welcome. We're glad you're here. We're going to be in Psalm 78 today. So we've taken a little break from our verse-by-verse teaching through Matthew, and we have been looking at the Psalms of Asaph. This is our second week, so we took a little break. And uh, Psalm 78 is where you want to be. Uh, The message is, teach your children well. Psalm 78, and obviously with the theme of VBS, it's going to fit well. Uh, There are 72 verses in this psalm, so we're going to read them all. We'll be here till 5 o'clock in the afternoon today. No, just kidding. We're just actually going to tackle the first eight verses. If you're able, stand with us for the reading of God's Word. I want you to notice if you uh, have a physical Bible or you've opened up a device, you'll notice that it's a psalm of Asaph. It's called a mascal of Asaph. You might wonder, what is that? First of all, Asaph wrote Psalm 50 and Psalm 73 through 83. So he's written a a good percentage of the Psalms. He was one of three main worship leaders under David and then Solomon. And a maskil is kind of like a contemplation. It's a, you could call this a wisdom psalm, but it's it's intended to be contemplative. That is to think about its message and don't repeat the Past mistakes is kind of the idea. So Psalm 78, verse 1, begins this way. Listen, O my people, to my instruction. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. Psalm 78, verse 2. I will open up my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known, and our fathers have told us. We will not conceal them from their children, but tell the generation to come the praises of the Lord, and his strength and his wondrous works that he has done. For he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should teach them to their children, six, that the generation to come might know, even the children yet to be born, that they may arise and tell them to their children, that they should put their confidence in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. And not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that did not prepare its heart and whose spirit was not faithful to God. You can have a seat. Heavenly Father, as we consider your word once again, we, we sit before a, a chapter that is so relevant to even a reflection of this last week where children from kindergarten to sixth grade learned about the armor of God and uh, how we need the armor of God. We're all in a spiritual battle, whether we realize it or not. Our kids are in the battle. Our grandkids are in it. And there are indeed two kingdoms, and there's light and darkness, and there is a true battle, and it's come to the surface maybe like never before in our lifetime. And here we have such a wonderful opportunity to think about the truth of a psalm inspired by God, written down by Asaph, who is called a prophet under King David's leadership. And we have a chance to listen, but not just to hear words, a chance to listen with the idea that we are truly disciples and citizens of a kingdom, indeed the kingdom of God. Jesus is our king, and there is a community that has made a commitment Uh, to that kingdom. And I pray, Lord, that whatever we may be facing, whatever our family history may be, wherever we are in our personal walk, 
whether we're a parent today, a grandparent, or someone who disciples others, or whatever it may be, that you would teach us, Lord, and that we would have ears to hear what your spirit would say to us right now. We know you want to speak to us, and we know that you've spoken. The question is, what kind of hearer are we? Help us to be ones that hear with the intention to obey our king and to find blessing in that obedience. We lay this time at your feet. We pray that you're pleased with it. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. Psalm 78, teach your children well. Uh, for those of you who are new to the church and new to myself, um, my wife and I have been married for 33 years and we raised three boys. They're all in their 20s now. And so me, as I look back at parenting and being a father and all of that, um, I can only right now reflect on uh, times past because my kids have grown up now, but grandchildren have come. And even with the idea of grandchildren, there, there's a great opportunity to continue to affirm and pour truth into them. So each of us have a privilege, and even if you don't have any of that kind of family around you, each of us are called to be disciplers or to teach Sunday school or to really have a role in other people's lives. Asaph lived at a time when you would say Israel was at its pinnacle in terms of godly leadership. He served under King David. David was the man after God's own heart. So you could say that he wrote this psalm at a relatively healthy period of Israel's history, although the bulk of Israel's history was unhealthy. They did not follow God. They were stubborn and rebellious, and they paid the price for it. And I would submit to you that they're still reaping the whirlwind today. If you go to Israel, Israel is largely an atheistic nation, humanistic. Uh, you'll find pockets of uh, Orthodox Jews. You'll find a Calvary chapel or two in Israel and Jerusalem. But for the most part, the nation is still secular. And so there's still the ripple effect of a covenant nation chosen by God that really didn't heed the voice of the Lord. And here we are in contemporary America. And we know our foundations, and our foundations are godly ones, not perfect ones, but our founders made a commitment with the form of government that we enjoy, and they said over and over again that this form of government, government which is really self-government and limited actual government, could only work with the people who are governed by God. So they used the Bible in the classroom to teach the kids the alphabet, etc. And it was really a main part of American history. The culture shut down on Sundays. And people went to church. And it didn't guarantee that everybody in churches loved the Lord or were born again. But it was kind of a cultural thing. And, and there's even a danger with a cultural uh, move towards the things of God where it can become mechanical and we can kind of lose the heart of it. And so Asaph writes at a period of time when David's the king and then he will move and he'll be there for the dedication of the actual physical temple in Jerusalem. So he enjoyed a wonderful time in terms of leadership in his nation. But even with that, he wrote a contemplative, you could call it, corrective warning in a song. Remember, all the psalms were actually songs. And there's lessons in here that we need to learn. And he starts with a key word. He says, Psalm 78, verse 1, listen. Listen, O my people. Now, 
I'm a person who spends my life speaking to groups of audiences. It's not something I ever imagined that I would do, but it's pretty much all I do now. And I can tell you from body language, usually who's listening. And I can tell active listeners and engaged listeners, and all of you are straightening up and trying to look. I can usually tell who's sleeping by the fact that they're sleeping. It's really a deep thing, but, but there is a way to listen. And it's interesting that Asaph, whose name means Yahweh gathers, when there's a gathered group of people, the key is to listen. Jesus told the parable of the sower or the soils. And he said in Luke 8, 18, if you're taking notes, therefore, be careful how you listen. For whoever has, to him shall more be given. And whoever does not have, even what he thinks he has, will be taken from him. Jesus said there's a way to listen. At the end of the glorious Sermon on the Mount, we studied it recently, Jesus capped off the sermon with an illustration of two different lives. And he compared them to foundations. One built their house on the rock, the other on the sand. What was the difference between the two listeners? Both heard the message. One acted upon it. The other did not. One built his house on the rock and the storm came and the winds blew. And there's no doubt that if you've built on the right foundation, you're still gonna have stormy times. The wind's gonna blow. The storm's gonna hit your house. But that house stood because it had been founded upon the rock, hearing and acting upon Jesus' truth. I'll show you another man. He hears the same truth, but he did not act upon it. What did he build his house on? It was a house of cards. He built it on sand. And when that same storm came to that same neighborhood, that house fell. And Jesus said, and great was its collapse or its crash. Many scholars believe that takes us all the way to judgment day. Whether or not that's true, I don't know. But Asaph's word is listen, and then it's listen, oh my people. You need to know that when Asaph says listen, he's not talking about just hearing sounds. Some of you may have perfect hearing, but you may hear like the Peanuts cartoon depicts the parents. Wah, 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 wah. Or for the modern audience, it might be blah, 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 blah. The person's always talking. The question is, what kind of listener are you? Are you a person who listens with the intent to obey? That's really what listen means here. Or does it just kind of pass through? Now, Ecclesiastes 5.1, Solomon wrote these words at the end of his life. Guard your steps, literally guard your feet as you go to the house of God and draw near to listen, Ecclesiastes 5.1, rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools for they do not know that they are doing evil. Asaph has put his finger on the problem. His people just are not good at listening. Do you know somebody like this? Maybe you told someone this week, you know, they're just not a good listener. Those of you who are parents, one of your chief jobs is to get your child to listen. But when you say listen, you don't just mean listen like hear sounds. You mean what? Obey. 
and you're all trying to use the tools at your discretion, whether it is a spanking on the hand or the backside, a timeout chair, whatever it may be. What's your goal? Well, that that child would learn how to obey you. You're not saying to them, now I just want you to hear the sounds, little Johnny. No, you're saying, I want you to do what I've asked you to do. Charles Stanley just went home to be with the Lord just a few weeks back. Great, faithful preacher of the word of God all the way until I think, what was he, in his 90s. And his famous line was, now listen, now listen. And there was a reason that Charles Stanley used that. It wasn't a filler. He was saying, I know how people can be. They can check out and tune out very easily. How do you listen? Well, for Asaph, he knew his people well. Notice in verse one, he says, oh, my people. Look, we all live in a contemporary culture right now, and we probably have a pretty good handle on how our people are, right? You know your people? You know your generation? You know how they tend to be? That's what Asaph is saying. He said, oh, my people, I'm one of you. And I know the problem that we've had throughout the centuries. And the problem is we haven't listened well to God. Now, if you were to pause for a moment and look at our culture, a culture very much grounded in biblical principles, how well are we listening? How big is the disconnect from confession to behavior? Now, we're all uh, facing that as we try to navigate our walk with the Lord. You'll see one more word in the text here. He says, incline your ears, a phrase actually. The word incline is an interesting word because it's a kind of a double emphasis on how you listen. It's the Hebrew word natah, N-A-T-A-H. It means to stretch out, to bend down. It's an intentional effort to open up and listen. Almost like you would kneel down to hear the voice of a little child. It's, it's, a, it's an effort. It's someone who's truly saying, I want to hear what God has to say. Inclining ears, says one writer, does not denote any ordinary sort of hearing, but such as a disciple renders to the words of his master or king with submission and reverence of mind, silent and earnest, that whatever is enunciated for the purpose of instruction may be heard and properly understood and nothing be allowed to escape. I was watching a news channel last night and some parents in a small town have made an effort to not give social media to their children until they're older. And they're talking about like high school age. And they said, we're not against social media and we know the value of a kid having a phone and being able to contact them and even know where they are, et cetera, et cetera. But they said, we realize that a fourth grader or a second grader doesn't need a phone. They don't need the social media influx into their lives, and they said, because we feel they're not ready to handle it. Now, I'm not condemning anybody here. I'm just saying this is an interesting thing. And so they're trying to gather a group of parents around this idea that we're not gonna give our kid access to social media until a certain age when we feel they're mature enough to handle it. I will tell you, Beckett Cook said, for every hour you watch Netflix, 
you better read your Bible for that same hour. Here's what's going on, whether you know it or not. A worldview is always underpinning a movie or a TV show or whatever you engage with. There's a worldview coming before you. You need to know this. And many, many shows on television, I would say the bulk of those shows, have an anti-biblical worldview. Would you agree? I'm not saying that you ought not to watch some of these shows. But what I am saying is that you need to know that there is a worldview being presented behind that show, that movie. And movie makers know that emotion will stir people towards even a change of mind. Listen to interviews with movie makers. They know what they're doing. So Asaph says, look, it is time for the people of God to listen. And look, there, there's, let me just tell you that the statistics say that the average Christian family attends church 1.5 times a month. I don't know what to do with the half. Although sometimes I look at people and think, yeah, they're halfway here. But think about that. So the average church service at Living Truth is about 90 minutes and all God's people said, yeah, right. Okay, maybe, maybe 100. But think about that time. Your kids, many of your kids are up in Sunday school right now and they're receiving truth and that's great. This last week we've had at VBS is unique. It's an annual event. And the kids got truth every night and that's great and they sang songs and they memorized verses and that's wonderful. But that ain't gonna do it. Because the influx of other things that they're getting into their life way overwhelms that. Let's just be honest. So how do we change that as modern parents and grandparents? How do we fight that tide? Well, we can't just do nothing. We can't expect Sunday school teachers to do everything for us. These people who are up in these classrooms right now who teach our kids supplement what you're supposed to do. In fact, the commands in the Bible that we're going to look at are spoken primarily to fathers and by implication to mom and dad. Yes, there are pastoral letters that instruct pastors on what to do and how to teach the flock, but my job is to prepare you to do the work of ministry, not for you to be wholly dependent upon a Sunday school teacher once a week. That ain't going to do it, and we all know it. So the question is, what do we do? How do we learn? I want to show you a prophetic passage in Isaiah 50. It's a little bit to your right. We'll put it up on the screen if you're new to the Bible, if you're trying to navigate your way here. Isaiah chapter 50 is a messianic servant song. So that means that it was written about the Messiah 700 years before he was born in Bethlehem. And here's what it says about Jesus. So it's as though Messiah is speaking through Isaiah the prophet. Isaiah 50 verse 4. The Lord God has given me, and you can think of Jesus here, the tongue of disciples or the tongue of a disciple. Now, he had the tongue of disciples that is an instructed tongue. He knew how to speak to others and train them, if you will, that I may know how to sustain the weary one with a word. And that was Jesus, right? He knew how to speak a word in season to build somebody up, to keep them going. And that's what we ought to be doing too. Notice something else about the Messiah. He, the Lord, awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to listen as a disciple. And then he says, 
verse 5, the Lord God has opened my ear and I was not disobedient nor did I turn back. Now every time you're going to hear the idea of hearing in the Bible, it will link with an instruction or with obedience. Here's what is being said about the Messiah. He had a tongue, obviously, never did a man speak like him. He, He spoke words of gold and they still are changing the world today. But he had also had an open ear. Uh, when we studied the law of the bondservant in Exodus 21, you guys remember that a ceremony took place. The person who wanted to stay on with their master because they loved them would go through a ceremony where their ear was pierced with an awl, like an ice pick, and they would stand against the threshold of a house where covenants were made in the ancient world, and the all would go through their ear, and it literally spoke of an open ear and it being attached to the master's house. And here's what it said. My ear will always be wide open to the voice of my master, and I will be attached to his house forever. The Messiah had an open ear and an open mouth. Let me just say practically, anyone who's a good teacher is a good learner. Anyone who's a solid shepherd is following the chief shepherd. Anyone who's a good disciple is being discipled by their king. If you want to be effective, you've got to be a good learner to pass along truth. You can't just know your Bible in passing. It's not going to cut it. There's a lot of challenging, difficult questions, and they can be answered, but we need that, dis- we need that uh, air that's ob- the ear obedient and not disobedient. John 8, 28, 29, Jesus said these words. When you lift up the Son of Man, John 8, 28, and 29, then you will know that I am he. I do nothing of my own initiative. I speak the things as the Father taught me, and he who sent me is with me. He's not left me alone. I always do those things that are pleasing to him, John 8, 28, 29. Implication, since the Messiah was human, he followed his father's lead to the T. To the he always did what pleased his father. His ear was open morning by morning. So let me just make a practical point. If you want to be effective as a disciple of Jesus Christ, each morning you awake, start your day with a simple prayer. Here I am, Lord. Before my feet hit the floor, my ear is open to you. You are my first priority and today is all I got. So I'm putting on the full armor of God from the top of my head to the bottom of my feet, from the helmet of salvation to the shoes of peace, and I want to do your will. And I know I can't do it alone, and I know how weak I can be and how my flesh is and what I'm going to face. So would you clothe me with the endowments of heaven, with being sensitive to your leading and your voice? That's how you do it. And when you do that, you will be effective. Now, I want you to turn back to Psalm 78, and I want to jump ahead just for a moment. Now, I mentioned 72 verses in the psalm, and and I want you to see something that's said about Ephraim. Ephraim was the kind of the uh, head tribe in the north for a time. And it says this about Ephraim, 78.9, the sons of Ephraim were archers equipped with bows, yet they turned back in the day of battle. Now, if you read a little bit on Psalm 78, scholars will say they cannot pinpoint an actual battle in Scripture where Ephraim turned away in cowardice. Maybe one story in the book of Judges, but probably not. What is going on here then? 
Well, they say this is probably in the spiritual battle where Ephraim, the northern uh, tribes, if you will, who were first judged by Assyria, they turned back. They wimped out in the spiritual battle. So once again, I'd ask you to pause. How do you think the church is doing in the spiritual battle? Now, I wrote a book available on Amazon for the bargain price, about $12.40. But it's not about that. But here's what I want you to know. A lot of you know about the armor of God, but you don't know how to put it on, or you don't put it on, or it's been a while since you put it on, because you almost have determined that that's for the kids. That's something you learn in Sunday school. And while that's true, it is absolutely essential that you suit up every day. We have a battle. And I've never seen anything like what we're facing today in 30 plus years of pastoral ministry. So I'm telling you right now, we've got to suit up. And if you learn the armor with your kids, this would be a great thing that you can do. Now, if you flip a few pages to your right, another Psalm of Asaph is Psalm 81. Let me just say that as Asaph was crying out, so God cries out through the voice of the prophet. Psalm 81, 13 says these words. Oh, that my people would listen to me. Now God is speaking through the prophet. That Israel would walk in my ways. Notice the link between listening and doing. I would quickly subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their adversaries. Those who hate the Lord would pretend obedience to him and their time of punishment would be forever. But I would feed you with the finest of wheat and with honey from the rock, I would satisfy you. God is saying, if my people would just simply listen to me, I would take care of everything. The resolution, the solution to what ails us as a culture and as a church culture is simply that basic. If we would listen and follow the Lord, and this is our biggest struggle, let's face it. It's not that we don't know truth, it's just that it's sometimes hard for us to do it, to obey it. There's much easier options, things that don't require effort, and it's kind of easy to go with the flow. And so, Verse two says this. I will open my mouth in a parable. Asaph now speaking in Psalm 78, verse two. I will open my mouth in a parable. Now that I've called you to listen, it's always good to call people to listen before you speak. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old. Now Asaph is about to speak to his generation. And he's gonna speak in a parable. And you say, a parable? I thought that was only a New Testament thing. Well, it's actually an Old Testament thing, and it's, the Hebrew word is mashal, and it's the idea of a riddle or a, kind of a difficult idea that's brought out or you kind of dive into it. Parabole is the Greek word, and para means alongside. And so the idea is you take a story and you put it alongside a truth that you're trying to bring out, and that's a parable. So if I, I mentioned movies earlier. So a good movie will have a truth you know, that you contemplate, you kind of take away. Well, a parable is a side-by-side -side comparison. It's an it's a earthly story with a heavenly point to try to get you to think, but more than that, it's to try to put you in the story. 
Where would you fit in this story? Who would you be? Would you be the older brother? Would you be the younger brother? Would you be the father? You know, it's that kind of thing. It causes one to really maybe dig down a little deeper than you normally would and, and wrestle with this idea of a parable. Uh, it's the idea also of a warning. A.S. Uh, Herbert says of this word in Hebrew, uh, he's well stated that it has the idea of a proverb, clearly a recognizable purpose that is a quickening uh, of a quickening and apprehension of the real as distinct from the wished for, of compelling the hearer or reader parable to form a judgment on himself and his situation and his conduct. And so this finds its expression, of course, in the parables of Jesus. The dark sayings of old is uh, kedah in Hebrew. It's a riddle or a difficult question or an enigma or a perplexing saying, hard question, parable. Kidner says uh, you could look at the Proverbs and see some of this in the Proverbs, kind of riddles and enigmas put before us so that we might find wisdom, we might learn what we're supposed to be doing. And so notice, he says, I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old. This is how Jesus spoke. I want you to hold your place in Psalm 78. Turn over to Matthew chapter 13. Jesus spoke many things in parables. And it got to the point where the disciples asked him, as they often did, after you know, observing him for a while, they said to him, Matthew 13, 10, why do you speak to the people in parables? We, we don't quite understand. Matthew 13, 11, Jesus answered. He says, to you it's been granted to know the mysteries, Matthew 13, 11, of the kingdom of heaven or God, but to them it has not been granted. For whoever has, to him shall more be given and he shall have an abundance, but whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him, 13, 13. Therefore I speak to them in parables because while seeing they do not see, while hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. In their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, present tense, which says you will keep on hearing but will not understand. You will keep on seeing but will not perceive. For the heart of this people, and the ear is always connected to the heart, has become dull. With their ears they scarcely hear, and they've closed their eyes lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return. See if they returned, what would happen? I would heal them. There's healing in the hearing, but it's a certain type of hearing. It's a return to the Lord. It's to make him king. So Jesus has told the parable of the sower, the wheat and the tares, the mustard seed and the leaven, a future study ahead of us in Matthew. And then a summary. Look at 34, same chapter. All these things Jesus spoke to the multitudes in parables. He did not speak to them without a parable so that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the foundation of the world or dark sayings of old. Where does that come from, brethren? Psalm 78, verse two. Do you see what's going on here? Jesus, back to Psalm 78, 
read his generation. He knew how they were. He knew that many of them had tuned God out decades before. And so in certain settings, he only spoke to the people in parables. And if you read through the gospels, you'll read that sometimes the disciples pull him aside and they say, can you explain this to us? We don't understand. And then he would say, are you dull of hearing too? You don't get what I'm saying? And then he would unlock the parable. Now, when you read Psalm 78, and I would encourage you to read through this psalm in your own devotional time, here's what you'll find. There's nothing complicated in this psalm. In fact, I read through the psalm multiple times this week and thought, there's nothing parabolic here or complicated. But you know what's more complicated is not so much what it says, but it's about the reaction of the people. That's what's confusing. What is hard to understand is not the content of Psalm 78, but the fact that the people didn't listen to God. Some of you have decided to do this. You said, all right, the preachers keep saying I need to read my Bible. I'm starting at Genesis, baby. Here we go. And you opened your Bible and you started reading. And you got through Genesis 1 through 11 and you were cool. And then you read about Abraham and the, the patriarchs. And you got to Exodus and you knew that story already. And, and you read about the tabernacle. And then you got to Leviticus. And you're like, oh my goodness. I buy my meat packaged at the store. They're slitting throats, blood everywhere. Kind of move on to numbers, and you're like, oh, wow, all these people are difficult and stubborn and obstinate. They believe in the Lord, then they don't believe. They trust him, then they don't. They're judged, and then help, God, help. And he judges them again, and then, and then they go back, and their affluence, they go back to their old ways, and then he judges them again, and back and forth, and up and down. What's wrong with these people? You want an interpretive dance to the book of Numbers? Are you ready? That's one. Never mind. <laughs> you might just need a little levity. Have you ever just <laughs> stood there reading your Bible and went, what is wrong? And then you realize, you know what? That's me. I'm committed to the Lord and then things get easier and then I fall away and then I try to come back and I want you to see, this is a section that's so insightful. Look ahead in the psalm. So it's recounting the exodus and God's goodness to the people and the manna and the water from the rock and all this beautiful stuff. Look at 32. In spite of all this, they still sinned. They did not believe in his wonderful works, so he brought their days to an end in futility and their years in sudden terror. When he killed them, then they sought him. <laughs> Wow, is that not the human condition? And returned and searched diligently for God and they remembered that God was their rock and the most high God, their redeemer. But they deceived him with their mouth, lied to him with their tongue. Some people just faked it because they wanted the blessing, right? But they didn't really love him for their heart was not steadfast toward him, nor were they faithful in his covenant. But he, 38, being compassionate, forgave their iniquity and did not destroy them. And often he restrained his anger and did not arouse all his wrath. Thus he remembered that they were but flesh, a wind that passes and does not return. How often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. 
Again and again, they tempted God and pained the Holy One of Israel. They did not remember his power the day when he redeemed them from the adversary. Look at verse 41. Verse 40, they grieved him. Verse 41, they pained him. If you have a New King James, it says they limited the Holy One of Israel. And there's little debate on which is correct. But the actual Hebrew word does mean to grieve. Do you know that Ephesians 4.30 says we can grieve the Holy Spirit as new covenant believers? If you read that chapter, you'll find we grieve him by letting the sun go down on our anger, being dishonest, stealing, doing things that are not in keeping with our new nature. And again, there's nothing new under the sun, right? So Asaph is showing the history of his people for what? Well, to not repeat history. And the one thing that we've learned from history is that we don't learn from history. We think we know better. We think we got it. We think we can do it on our own. We think this God thing can be dismissed from the classroom and the, you know, the marketplace and our experiment. Well, <laughs> it ain't going so hot. But I'll tell you this, this is nothing new. And the question that really it all comes down to is what will we do as individuals? Let's look at verse three of Psalm 78. We'll move quickly. The things which we have heard and known, Psalm 78, three, our fathers have told us, indeed truth was passed from one generation to the next. We will not conceal them from their children, but tell the generation to come three things about God Mark it in verse four of Psalm 78. One, we will teach them the praises of the Lord. That could be worship, but it's also the idea of what we celebrate about God. Two, we will teach our kids his strength. Three, we will teach the wondrous works that he has done. We will tell the God story in our family. Some of you are like, well, I'm not an ancient Israelite. What would I say? What would I teach? Tell your kids and grandkids what the Lord has done for you. Amen? Tell them the gospel. Tell them the good news. When the boys were growing up, I tried to be careful because they were PK, preacher's kids, right? And preacher's kids, you know, are kind of a different breed. And I got some warnings from other pastors about how to handle things and, you know, what to do. And there can be pressure when you're a pastor's kid, so we would do family devotions at least a couple times a week in addition to all of our church going. And we, you know, we lived at the church. And when the kids were young, we would have dinner together at least, you know, two, three times a week or more. And we would let them eat first. This is a key. You're raising boys. Don't do the devotion before they eat. They will probably kill each other and kill you. Let them eat. Clear some dishes away and share some truth. Now, I'm not talking about a 45-minute sermon. I'm talking about a nugget, age-appropriate. Maybe you learned something in a men's or women's Bible study, and you would say, hey, hey, I learned this this week, and you give them a five-minute. Maybe you apply it to a life situation or something going on at school, a principle, if you will. I remember a, a brother in the Lord that was a mature believer, and I was talking about family devotions and fathering and he wanted some advice on how to do it. And he goes, how do you do it? And I thought he meant, how do you teach? And he didn't mean that. He knew plenty of truth. He didn't know how to start. Like, what do you do? How do you begin family devotions? And I said, 
Do you guys eat together a couple times a week? Yeah. Well, eat and then clear the dishes away and spend a little time giving them spiritual food. It's your job. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, Ephesians 6, 4, but raise them in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Do you know when you break down the words in Ephesians 6, 4, very familiar passage, the idea is a father, pater in Greek, means a nourisher. In Hebrew, father is two letters. It's ab, A-B, and uh, we would take it into English. It's aleph, it's an ox head, like R-A, turn on the side, means strength. And the B is a house, bait. Aleph, bait, is father. Ab, or Abba, means the strong leader of a house. If you look up the Greek word, it means a nourisher, a protector. Boy, do we need to regain biblical masculinity. And biblical masculinity doesn't mean that you're some machismo, over-the-top man. It means you have a good balance. It means you're like Jesus. You know when to be compassionate. The word nourish is actually the word used or uh, some of the language in Ephesians 6, 4 for how a husband needs to cherish his wife. This is what fathers need to be. We need to be nourishers. A mother in Hebrew, in the Hebrew picture language is M, E-M, or A-M. It's the Aleph. It's the strong ox head again, strength. And it's, it looks like teeth, how Moses would have written it. And it means strong water or the life giver. And children need a combination of a mom and dad to have a good balanced view of who God is. Amen? Forget about all the nonsense where they tell you one parent is irrelevant. That is absolutely bogus. Both mom and dad are critical. But you guys, most of you know my story. My dad left when I was four. Never saw him again. So what do you do when dad leaves? Well, I w- I'll tell you what happened to me. And I have an incredible mom and grandparents who stepped in, but I was angry. I was angry at a father I didn't even know. And I was in the gym. <laughs> I'll show him. I had it in my mind that I was going to play for the Chicago Cubs. I was a baseball player. And I would show my father how wrong he was. And maybe when I was at the plate, I would wink and spit, because baseball players spit anyway, and just show him. (laughs) Right? Who was I trying, who was I mad at? He didn't even know. And he probably didn't even care. And I bring it up because some of you come from brokenness and you're like, well, what do I do now? Or you're past that time. There's always an opportunity for redemption. God takes the broken pieces of all of our lives and can rebuild them. In fact, when you read the last part of this psalm, it talks about David, and we won't go there for the sake of time. And David was the shepherd after God's own heart, the leader after God's own heart. And the greater David is Jesus. And he's come into all of our messes. This is a hospital right here, amen? The only reason I'm standing here is because of the grace of God. And that's part of what we share with our kids. I said at first service, if you grew up in a legalistic, over-religious home and you had rules without relationship, that leads often to rebellion. Josh McDowell said it. Rules without relationship lead to rebellion. If you have your kids line up in the morning and you're like the commander in chief and you don't show them the love of Christ, you're gonna lose them. If you are fighting like 
cats and dogs, all the way to the church, and then you put on your church smile when you get here. <laughs> Hallelujah, praise the Lord. Hey, brother, hey, sister. And then you get back in the car. <laughs> the kids see that, and they're not fooled. You can fool the people here, but you haven't fooled them, and they're the ones that you're supposed to be shaping. So well, what do we do? Be authentic. When you make a mistake, admit it. You're a work in progress, and you can admit to them that that's what you are. And I'll tell you what, it will be disarming to many people when you just are honest. Look, I haven't arrived. I'm preaching to myself, too. We all, look, when Brenda and I got married, we were brand new Christians. We were trying to figure out stuff we knew nothing about. That is, yeah, we had some examples in our life, but biblical truth, we were learning and we were trying to apply what we learned as we went. And a lot of you are right there and you do the best you can. And you, every set of parents needs to apologize to their firstborn. Amen? <laughs> you guys know what I'm talking about? And then by the time the third child comes along, there's no pictures of them. <laughs> they think they came from outer space or they were adopted. And do you know why? Because by the time you get to the third one, you don't care anymore. <laughs> okay, no, I'm kidding. There's kids in the room. We care. We love you. We just become a little bit more laxed, okay? Take less pictures. <sighs> good friend of mine, Dr. Green, at a men's Bible study said, if you're not setting the tone for your house, then someone else is setting it. And it will likely be the culture around you. If you're not setting the tone, if you don't say, brother, sister, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. You will blow with the cultural winds and they're gonna blow everywhere. You gotta make a declaration. You've gotta plant your flag and when you do, it will have a great effect. Tell the awesome things that the Lord has done for you. Nurture, do the best you can, be honest, transparent. Colossians 3.21 says, Fathers, don't exasperate your children, that they may not lose heart. I had something in my notes from years ago. Harvard University sociologist Sheldon and Eleanor Gluick developed a test with 90% accuracy, came from 1950. Four things, here's what they said. This will keep kids from delinquency is the language of the past. Number one, the father's firm, fair, and consistent discipline. Number two, the mother's supervision and companionship during the day. Number three, the parents demonstrated affection for each other and for the children. Number four, the family spending time together in activities where all participated. They said 90% of the time, if you did that, your kids will be doing well. And all God's people said, duh. I mean, is that some revelation? The father's firm, fair, and consistent discipline. A mother's supervision and companionship during the day. The parents demonstrating affection and love for each other in front of the children. Even gross them out. It's all right. If, if you kiss and they go, ee, ee, just do more. <laughs> oh, honey. Oh, baby. Mm -hmm. Embarrass them. And even if 
They're going, yuck. Deep down, they know you love each other. Don't be afraid to hug and kiss your children. Tell them you love them, even if you told them a thousand times during the week. I'm telling you, these are the basic things that make a huge difference in the family. And they're not rocket science. Love, honor, respect, courage, chivalry. Open the car door for your wife. Give her flowers when a national holiday does not require it of you. <laughs> Some of you are romantically impaired, to say the least. <laughs> Wait a minute. Did you guys hear that? What'd she say? She says he does it. I bring her flowers pretty much once a week. Yeah, you should say that. Uh, I'm trying to earn points here. It's not about me, sorry. All right, final verses. God established, verse five, a testimony in Jacob, a witness appointed a law in Israel. His fingerprints are all over the nation, which he commanded our fathers. It's not a suggestion, it's a command that they should teach them to their children, that the generation to come, listen, might know, even the children yet to be born, you are not living for yourself. Time goes by, and for me, it seems like I blinked and my kids are all in their 20s. But you've got to think about generations to come. I know that there's been a lot of talk about the end of the world and the rapture of the church, but you've got to live as though Jesus isn't coming for a thousand years because we don't know. And frankly, everybody who made predictions in the 70s and 80s was wrong. So live not just for now, but for the generation that you don't even meet. The generation to come, which you will meet in eternity, that they might know, even the children yet to be born, that they may arise and tell their children. Clark sees five generations in verse six. The fathers, the ch their children, the generation to come, their children, and their children. We are to never lose sight of the generational impact of a life committed to God. What should we teach them? That they should put their confidence in God, that's verse seven. Set their hope in God, ESV. And not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. There's three things in verse seven as well. Teach them to put their confidence in God. Look, I think self-confidence is a wonderful thing, but my confidence is in Christ, amen? And if we teach our kids to be confident because they know who they are, where they came from, where they're headed, God has a plan for their life, they believe in God's providential care over their life, it's, it's, gonna, it's gonna calm them. There's a big, there's a master plan here. And it's not just about one generation. We should teach them to put confidence in God, not themselves, not to forget his works and simply to keep his commandments. And for us as believers, the commandments of the Lord are not burdensome. Whatever Jesus said, that's what we do. And not be like their fathers. There's power even in a negative example. Some of you are sitting here and you had a rough upbringing. Well, then don't be like them. Don't be like those who weren't committed to you or the right way. You see, their fathers were a stubborn and rebellious generation. 
a generation that did not prepare its heart. The problem was inside. It was their heart and whose spirit was not faithful to God. I want you to turn to Deuteronomy, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, Deuteronomy chapter six and we're done. So I want to remind you as you turn there, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, fifth book of the Old Testament, that the writer of Psalm 70 ends with David and I, I want to make sure that we understand the gospel. It's good news. Christ did for us what we can't do for ourselves. We're saved by grace. Deuteronomy 6 verse 1 but here's kind of the bedrock instruction as Moses uh, taught before he actually died and went to be with the Lord. Deuteronomy 6.1. Now this is the commandment, the statutes, and the judgments which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you, that you might do them in the land where you are going over to possess it, so that you and your son and your grandson might fear the Lord your God to keep all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life and that your days may be prolonged, that it may be well with you is the idea. Leonard Nimoy, who played Spock in um, Star Trek, he came up with this, live long and prosper. You know where he got it? He was Jewish. And this is the hand signal for the high priest when he prayed over the people or the priest when he prayed over the people. The ironic blessing, he would have his hands out. I can't do it with this hand like this, and this is how you pray. Leonard Nimoy implemented that into Star Trek, live, live long and prosper from his Jewish roots. And here's what it says. Oh, Israel, you should listen and be careful to do it, that it may be well with you. You want a blessed life? That you may multiply greatly, just as the Lord, uh, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. He wants to do good to you. Hear, O Israel. The Lord is our God and the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way. Look for teachable moments when you lie down, when you rise up. Very sweeping and comprehensive command. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be on the frontals of your, on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. I would encourage you guys to put scripture all over your house. It's a good reminder for you and your kids. Then it shall come about when the Lord your God brings you into the land which he swore to your fathers Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to give you great and splendid cities which you did not build, houses full of all good things which you did not fill, hewn cisterns which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant, and you shall eat and be satisfied. Then watch yourself, lest you forget the Lord who brought you from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. You shall fear only the Lord your God, and you shall worship him and swear by his name. Heavenly Father, thank you for the truth of Psalm 78, just those first eight verses that we looked at. There's a lot to consider a lot to contemplate, a lot to both understand and apply. Thank you for the wonderful congregation here at Living Truth. So many committed, on fire servants of the Most High God. And they have endeavored to raise their kids in the ways of the Lord and 
Some are brand new to the faith and some are very seasoned. But we all, Lord, need to be reminded. We're pastors are in the reminding business that we cannot forget the basics and we must pass truth along. That's one of our primary jobs on this planet is to prepare the next generation, whether they're up and coming pastors, whether they're our kids or grandkids or great grandkids, whether we come alongside a younger person and help them, whatever it may be, Lord, thank you for this incredible body, the impact that they make really around the world. And I pray you would bless them and strengthen them in areas where they may feel a tinge of conviction. I pray that they'll just truly lean into you a little harder, a little stronger, find all the resources of of heaven are available to them in our great high priest. You ever live to intercede for your people, you will give us the help we need. We simply need to make a move. As we draw near to you, you will draw near to us. Now, if you're here, and maybe these are truths that you've heard for the first time, maybe you're watching via live stream or hear this on radio later. It starts with the right foundation. Do you know Christ? Do you realize that you've sinned against the most high God? That we all deserve judgment? Jesus, the great king, came down on a rescue mission. Keep your heart bowed and consider what I'm saying right now. He died on that terrible cross, taking the wrath of God. He tasted death for each one of us. He rose from the dead to defeat our mortal enemy, death. He's alive. He's been changing lives for 2,000 years. And he can change you. You can be born again to a living hope, but you must decide to make him your king. That simply means turn away from doing it on your own. Repent. Place your full trust in Jesus, not just as your Savior, but as your Lord and King. Ask him to save you right now by grace through faith. Ask him to give you a new heart, a new start, and the resources of heaven to learn what it means to live for a transcendent cause, to be a man or a woman of honor. It's not easy. And to experience the grace of God when you fall short, which we all do. Lord, may the blessing of your Holy Spirit be poured out afresh on all your people who I know uh, deep in their hearts desire to be what you've called them to be. Would you equip them for the week ahead? Would you bless them? Would you protect them from the evil one? Would you heal areas of their lives physically or otherwise that need a touch? Would you pour out a fresh blessing of living waters, refresh them, strengthen them, help them keep fighting the good fight. I pray in Jesus' mighty name, all God's people said, amen.